had a, a pretty good idea of the principles. Like if we had a hard training session uh, the day after, you would have more carbs, especially in the afternoon and evening before that session. And then if there's a rest day afterwards, that was the time that you sort of um, backed off a little bit. You didn't need to have as many carbs. You could back off the energy a little bit. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We're also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical messages and strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask, the sort of things that people are often debating when they're out training or discussing online on forums uh, or delving into YouTube or Google to try and find answers for. So we'll break those down, and we invite a guest expert or an athlete to share their perspective. So how are you going this week, Steph? I hear you've got a new study that you're helping to look after at Monash. Uh, you need to recruit some people. But first of all, how are you going? <laughs> I'm going good. Yeah, I'm going good. Um, snuck in uh, a run this morning before it, like, it's it's been bloody hot. Like, keeps going. Well, it's funny. Like, it's, it's not that hot by oh. historical standards, yeah. I guess, in Melbourne. But yeah. It's just, just felt like it this week. I don't know what it is, maybe because we had such a cool start to summer and we're just not so, well acclimatised. Yeah, yeah, and we've been locked inside, yeah, mm. yep, yep. Too much, too much cushy mm. aircon yep. or something. Yeah, but the yeah. Kangas the Kangas were out today. They were wanting to join me on the run and um, I let them scoot past. Um, but, yeah, just, just enjoying running and... Uh, that's about it, really, and getting stuck into this new study, which um, we are recruiting for. Um, I shouldn't say it's not new. Uh, so it's, it, it was, you know, going on from, from last year. Um, but we're wanting to recruit um, male, uh, male athletes so they can be runners or triathletes um, and they need to be able, capable to, to run for a couple hours on the treadmill. Um, in hot um, conditions, so it's 35 degrees, so it's a bit steamy out. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, so anyone interested in this um, study, just if, yeah, they contact me, uh, basically we're, we're comparing some supplements and seeing if it's protective to, to the gut when we're in these, um, you know, sort of, uh, strenuous exercise conditions so it will be really helpful in helping formulate potential nutrition products in the future uh, and there is uh, a nice gift voucher which I've never had the luxury of, of having in my studies so they they do get to benefit from um, from uh, a voucher which is really nice too yep Awesome. So just to be clear, it's, I mean, obviously it's quite hot, so that's the strenuous mm. part of it, but the running itself, it's not like a really high intensity, is it? No, it's only, it's, so it's 60%, um, which is kind of a lot of our, our research studies, which are the endurance based. Um, mm. Yeah. Yep. Just because that's kind of that sort of level that, that a lot of ultra um, athletes will generally tend to 
to go to. Um, so yeah, sixty yeah. percent VO two, and you and you are jumping off as well. So um, yeah, and we're definitely monitoring, obviously, from a safety perspective too. Yeah, yeah, and so just to put that into perspective, I guess most of the participants who would come through the lab, sixty percent of VO two max is around eight to ten k's an hour. Yeah, in, yep. In terms yep, of running speed. Yep, exactly. Uh, yep, so 8 to 10 k's an hour. Yep. Yep. So if you can do that for a couple of hours, mm. um, albeit in hot weather, then you can, you can come and join you, Steph. Yeah, exactly. And they get to, yeah, they're drinking according to, to thirst as well as whatever we're providing them. So yep. um, we're not dehydrating them. Yep. Cool. Awesome. And what about you, Mr. Al? Yeah, just, just, crawling across the finish line to school starts again, I think, next week. Um, yeah, apart from that, oh, I've submitted a manuscript for a review, which is Ooh, always good. So, yeah, we'll wait a few weeks and yeah. hopefully hear something back from that. Yep. So that'll be nice. So that was a follow-up to the abstract that I did at the Sports Dietitians Australia awesome. Conference last year, which we talked a bit about at that time yep. um, back in October on the podcast. So um, looking at sort of mathematically modelling the sodium requirements of people in different scenarios and I guess what that teaches us about sodium needs of athletes in different scenarios and when it's important, when it's not, and I guess what factors influence or make it important or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'll wait and see what happens from the review perspective. Yeah, and we're going to have a podcast on that in more detail um, coming up too. Yeah, yeah, we'll wait till the uh, the review's done, yeah. I think, and get the feedback, feedback from the reviewers, yeah. which will always be good, yep. hopefully constructive. Yep. And then, um, yeah, Fine. once that paper's looking like it's pretty much done, then we can start playing that episode. Awesome. Sounds good. Mm. All right. Well, today's episode is episode 29B, Steph. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us what our topic is and who our guest is? Yeah, so um, the topic is how do I balance eating for training quality and weight loss? And our guest is Neil. Van der Ploeg. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm not good with pronunciation at the best of times, uh, so <laughs> I thought it's better for you to help me with that surname. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he's actually an athlete that you looked after um, with, I believe, this is it called Search to, it used to be called Search to Retain? Yes. Yep. Yeah, it was a recruitment company. Okay. okay. It was the sponsor, yeah, so yep. Search to Retain. That was quite a number of years ago. That team hasn't existed for probably, or in that name, for probably about five or six years, possibly even longer. But, yes, I did work with Neil when he was back at that team back in sort of 2012-13. Yep, yep. Awesome. So, yeah, looking forward to this. So this is adding to the um, episode that you already did, Al, so just providing some practical info on that. Yep. But before we get into that, um, social media um, shout-outs and questions? Yeah, not a lot this week. People have been uh, busy enjoying the last of their summer holidays down here in the southern half of the world. Mm. Uh, Maybe in the northern half of the world they've been... uh, I don't know, busy shoveling snow or something. (laughs) Um, But, yes, uh, on Twitter, though, we did have a a very nice um, comment from Dr. Tim Crow, who was our guest actually on episode 6A, Why Is Nutrition So Confusing? And people may know Tim. He's got an extremely popular podcast, Thinking Nutrition, uh, which is all around all different aspects of nutrition, both health and and sports-related, but mostly health-related. 
and he shared one of our, our latest preview tweets uh, and just said, great podcast by this dynamic duo. So thanks so much, Tim, for, for sharing it around. Mm. Um, and, yeah, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast one day on another topic because, yeah, we had a great time chatting to Tim back in episode 6A, which was probably about 12 months ago. Yeah, yep. I, I love his um yeah like social media stuff and and just how he explains things like mm. and I think it's really good for general public too he just um can make things just a lot simpler and easier to understand and interesting yep awesome and as usual Steph you've been out and about and amongst the people <laughs> every week now we get comments just from from just walking down the street people are approaching you talking about the podcast out, I put out the line um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we were um, yeah had a had a race walker actually a, a pretty decent race walker um, who said that they enjoyed and found our FODMAP episode um, really useful. Um, so yeah, so that's that's nice to to hear. Hmm, yep. Absolutely. Hmm. Awesome. Well, if you want to give us any feedback or you've got a topic that you'd like. Uh, answered on the podcast you can contact us via social media at the long munch on facebook instagram or twitter Uh, feel free to get in touch we'd love to hear from you and uh, yeah love to hear any suggestions you've got for questions that you'd like answered on the podcast all right so today's episode episode 29b how do i balance eating for training quality and weight loss and we are joined um with neil um, and uh, just before we get stuck into this, just again, uh, uh, eating disorder trigger warning, as we mentioned in our last episode. Um, so, yeah, we, we realised that talking on topics surrounding weight and body image can trigger certain emotions and behaviours for individuals with past or present eating disorders, um, and today we're going to be talking about, you know, certain methods to achieve weight and body fat loss for runners, cyclists and triathletes where this is safe, appropriate and necessary. So if you or anyone you know needs help in this area, there are a number of helplines that you can contact. In Australia, this includes the Butterfly Foundation on 1-800-334673 and Headspace on one 800 There are many others in both Australia and overseas. Ultimately, if you're concerned that the content in this podcast might be triggering for you, it may be best to stop listening to this week's episode and we'll be back with other content unrelated to body weight or dieting next week. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'll just introduce Neil before we get into this interview. Uh, So as you said earlier, Steph, uh, Neil Vanderplug is a, a cyclist. Many people in Australia will probably know the name um, he raced uh, sort of at that sort of NRS, so top domestic level and, and overseas a bit on the UCI Asia Tour and, and also in Europe a little bit um, with sort of UCI continental teams uh, from about 2010, I think it was, through to 2019 when he finished that part of his career. Um, and so the first part of that was with the Search to Retain team where he was both racing mountain bikes and on the road. Um, and then he switched to pretty much fully on the road Um into 2013 um, had some real success there and then swapped across uh, in 2014 to what was then the Avanti racing team which 
went through several name changes as cycling teams tend to do uh, and ended up as, as what is now the Bridge Lane cycling team. So they're pretty much the, the top domestic team uh, for the men's uh, National Road Series and have been for pretty much at least the decade or so that Neil's been involved in the sport. Um, so yeah, as you said, I had the privilege of working with Neil. I was working with the Search to Retain team um, back in 2012 and 13 when he was there uh, and got to work with him specifically around this issue of, you know, how do I balance um, training performance so you're well fueled for those sort of key training sessions so you're not losing anything from that perspective but at the same time you are actually uh, achieving some body fat loss towards a, a body composition goal or, or target uh, and for him that was leading into the road national championships um, which are up Mount Bunningyong uh, just outside Ballarat and they're the same course every year or, or a variant on that course so most people in cycling in Australia will be very familiar with that course they've seen it on TV or they've been there to, to watch it themselves uh, and it's it's you know several repeats up a you know a reasonably steep climb um, so yeah so that's what we sort of worked on and um, I guess one of the one of those sort of people earlier on in my career that I did sort of apply this periodized nutrition that we talked about last week that those principles to uh, and quite successfully which we'll hear about in the, the podcast um, and yeah great to, to get Neil's perspective on like what that looked like from his perspective as opposed to mine in the, the planning side of it um, and then at the end of this step we're also going to um, have a little bit more practical information we do reference uh, in the conversation with Neil, I think, or maybe it was last week, I can't mm, remember which, uh, a case study, week. yeah, a case study uh, around body fat loss and, and how that changes over the course of a year. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the interview with Neil. So stick around if you're, if you're interested to hear about that as well. Yep. Awesome. Uh, all right, let's get stuck into it. Yep, we'll do. Neil Vanderplug, welcome to the Long Munch podcast. How are things going up there in Albury? They're going pretty good, pretty good, Alan and Steph. We've uh, we've had like a lot of places in Australia, a particularly wet summer, which has filled me with a little bit of hope. Actually, normally the uh, the Nail Can Hill bush just behind me, it gets very dry and it looks like it's it's dying, but this year it's green, so. I'm enjoying it, enjoying a bit of uh, a bit of a wet summer, and I'm, my fingers are crossed that they're not too rare going forward. Mm, yeah, and definitely, obviously, with like the bushfires up in your part of the world over the last couple of years, nice to have a summer where that seems to be much less of a threat than it has been. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, yep. Awesome. All right. Well, a lot of people would probably know your name uh, if they've been following cycling, particularly here in Australia. Um, you've been a regular in the NRS, the National Road Series, for probably most of the 2010s, really. Um, obviously had some success in that and as well as the, the UCI Asia Tour. Did a little bit of racing over in Europe as well, but I think finished all of that up in about 2019. But people may have seen you back on the roads of Ballarat and up Mount Bunningyong again just last week at the Road Nationals, but in a, in a very different format. Do you want to tell us what you're up to these days in terms of your cycling? Yeah, a bit of a different format, Alan. I've got a friend who is vision impaired who I actually met at university, uh, actually here in Albury at, at Charles Sturt University. And after finishing uni, he has basically been doing a bit of triathlon and a bit of running, swimming, just a bit of uh, various things. And I actually went for a ride with him way back then, just just the odd occasion, just for a bit of fun. We went on one uh, five-hour training ride that was uh, 
I, c- I think he wasn't too keen going on and he uh, <laughs> we didn't do one for a fair while. I think it sort of destroyed him. But, yeah, after um, after I finished racing as a professional, he sort of said, hey, Neil, uh, the rules for this tandem cycling is that once you haven't been sort of on a professional contract for two years, then you can pilot at things like the national champs and, you know, Commonwealth Games, Olympics, all that sort of stuff. And he was just like, hey, do you want to train up for the national champs? And this was last year and we looked it up and it was it was only a couple of days after I was eligible to do it. And I did it last year and had a good time. And then we've just trained up again and and gone down there again just last week and, and competed for the second time. So yeah, a very different a different style of riding. Still cycling, but uh much bigger bike and yeah, with someone else very close to me on the back. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And what's it like? going up Mount Bunningyong on a tandem compared to on, on your normal road bike? Yeah, riding a tandem is generally, it's it's a bit like going from a car to a bus. Like it <laughs> feels long and it's it's a little bit less nimble. So going up, it's sort of, it definitely feels like you're just, you're just heavier, which you are. There's obviously two yeah. of you. You've got a much bigger bike. And so it feels, it feels a bit laborious on the climbs. And then once you get to the top, it's fast. Like it's really (laughs) fast on the flat and it just absolutely hooks when you've got like a little bit of a gentle downhill. So as we're going down Gear Avenue and in the time trial, we went down Fiskin Avenue, the one that's a little bit more windy. Uh, I think I went pretty much as fast as I did uh, on my fastest time down Fiskin Avenue on the tandem. So, and that was just solo, no, you know, no other people or anything like that. So yeah, tandem's interesting. It's definitely, it's a bit of a sort of freight train. Once it gets up momentum, it's hard to stop, which is a bit scary because you obviously, you can't do anything like lift your front wheel up. You can't sort of, if you need to get around a pothole or, mm. or something like that, mm. you don't really have the ability to do it. You tend yep. to just sort of plow into things. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit nerve wracking at times, but uh, a lot of fun. Yep. Awesome. And um, you had a bit of success, obviously, first in the the time trial. I'm not sure if you call it an individual time trial when there's two of you on the bike, but the time trial nonetheless. And yeah, um, good second point, in the Yeah, second in the road race. I hadn't race. thought of that before, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, yeah, the time trial. But yeah, it was good. We Last year, we actually had a little bit of unfinished business. We got pipped in the time trial by three seconds by these guys from the Southern Highlands, just uh, south, I think quite a bit south of Sydney, really, in the in that sort of Mossvale region. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they pipped us last year by a few seconds. And then in the road race, we dropped our chain when we were just about to win. So we got a second uh, in the road race, second in the time trial. So this year we, we came back and we managed to turn the tables on the Highlanders and uh, we beat them, funnily enough, by exactly three seconds, more or less. So yeah, it was another super tight race, but we managed to to bring home the goal. Awesome. Gold, awesome. sorry. <laughs> and is there any sort of thoughts or goals towards, you know, bigger bigger and better events in terms of, you know, paracycling world champs or anything like that in the future? Yeah, we'll just have to sort of play it by year. Like, we haven't really been too sort of, you know, ambitious we certainly haven't been and i think it's probably just the type of people we are we're not sort of you know we're not writing things on you know motivational boards we're not sort of putting (laughs) posters up or anything like that we're just sort of taking it a little bit as it comes we were sort of thinking uh the commonwealth games would be a good thing to sort of go on from this national championships and potentially sort of 
look at, but it sort of didn't last very long because we realized that at the Com Games, it's very patchy. So there is a little bit of tandem riding, but it's all on the track, which we don't do. So there's no uh, there's no events for us to really go for at the Com Games. So yeah, moving forward, it's probably actually racing a little bit just in just with other bikes, just trying to improve, uh, just get a little bit better, and then uh, look at the sort of qualifications for potentially things like Olympics. But fair way off. I certainly wouldn't uh, bet on it at this stage, Alan. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right. Um, and then thinking, I guess, back over your professional cycling career, uh, obviously, you know, probably 10 years plus in the end, what are sort of the, the highlights or fondest memories that you have from that time on the bike? Look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good memories, Alan. There's, uh, yeah, it's sort of, as I sort of thought back um, about these sort of past decade i suppose there's lots of there's lots of highlights lots of lowlights but i'd say the best one would probably be the national championships in 2015 when i managed to get on the podium yeah like it was just i think when you're racing in australia like it's just you just have so many more people watching it like they're just mm. the sort of the buzz around the event and just the number of friends and family who sort of watch it because it is so well televised it was just that was just a, an awesome experience. And the way the race was panning out as well, to have like, it was, a, it was a fairly small bunch. We had about, I think, eight riders in a bit of a, a small break. There was just lots of attacking and it was it was really sort of strategic and it was just an exciting race. So it was just it was just so good to be part of and to have like a genuine chance at, at winning the national title, even though it didn't, didn't uh, you know, it didn't pan out, ended up with third, but just to be sort of amongst it and to sort of, you know, really uh, have a genuine chance was just, it was just amazing. That's the sort of thing that I really didn't sort of, yeah, when I was younger, I sort of didn't didn't think that that was on the cards at all. Like mm. I was sort of doing other sports even, but yeah, yeah. to sort of um, manage to transition to the road and, and, and do that well was just, yeah, I was thrilled. So yeah, yeah that was that was probably the highlight, I'd say, Alan. Yeah, fair enough. And we we're actually going to ask you that later on. Obviously, um, sprinting off. I think there was three of you going into the finish, wasn't it? Yourself, Caleb Ewan, and Heinrich Hausler. So you know, yeah, there's a couple hitters. more as well. There's a couple more. I think by the end of that last lap, we might have had, we might have even had about six. Yeah, Campbell Flakemore was in there, and Angus Morton, and I think there might have been. Yeah, there was another rider from Drapak, Sam Spokes, as well. So it was mm. very, it was very strategic. Lots of people attacking and trying to force people like Caleb to to chase the move. And I actually did a bit of an attack going into the final corner with a couple of K to go, which I reckon I was kind of hoping that Caleb would hesitate to chase me down, mm. but he didn't hesitate. And I think, um, I think that's just quietly. I think that's why he didn't win. He was, uh, he was, he was Spenny just spickies. That's right. He was, he was so keen to chase everything down, which is probably a good move because everyone would have just looked at him. But Heinrich Hauser sort of slipped under the radar. He he got dropped on the final climb actually, and sort of worked his way back on somewhere along the descent where we were sort of getting a little bit, you know, strategic and people were attacking each other. So I think he sort of used his craft and and got the better of a very enthusiastic uh, Caleb Ewan. Yeah, awesome. Now, the other thing I was going to ask you about, um, and I've sort of memories of this because I was working with the Search to Retain team that you were riding on at the time, uh, was I guess that point where your career kind of took off really. Um, you know, we first met in probably early 2012 when I started working with the team. And like I remember the first few months of that, things weren't 
going so well for you. And um, I think it was about then you started working with Mark Fenner, your yep. coach that you then had for the rest of your career. Uh, and the, the second half of that year, you know, things really improved. And we'll talk a little bit about, I guess, the nutrition implementation of that shortly and, you know, what that sort of culminated from, not necessarily from the nutrition, but just, you know, culminated in that season. Um, and then obviously, you know, from there, more success followed and you ended up moving to the Avanti Racing Team, which was really the top domestic team and, and has been for, for well over a decade now. But looking back on that, was it, can you put your finger on, was there one specific thing, do you think, in 2012 that sort of was that turning point for you? Or do you think it was a matter of a lot of different things kind of coming together at the same time? Yeah, I think it was a number of things coming together. I had, prior to that, I was still finishing up uni so I was sort of a little bit sort of distracted with some of those things and as you said I didn't have a coach so I I was actually trying to think back why I didn't have a coach earlier and I think it was just because I was always living with people who had coaches and I just thought I was a very social person like I didn't want to go out and do my own training I was just like right I'll just go do what you're doing and (laughs) we're doing the same races like it's it's, it's probably going to be good for me if it's good for you. So I was living with Scott Liston in 2011 and, yeah, he just following his um, his program, finishing off uni and still racing the mountain bike as well. Mm. And, look, a lot, of, a lot of riders have juggled those two really well, but I don't think I was doing as good of a job, I'd say. <laughs> mm. Someone like Cam Ivory is just – I think he's still doing a bit on the mountain bike, but he's just won the, the National Criterium Championships. But I think it wasn't until I really – you know, got a coach, so started getting coached by Mark Fenner and started just sort of committing 100% to the road that things really started to go well. And look, I think as like like you are saying, it was a number of things. I think working with yourself, Alan, really sort of like got the, uh, the diet and nutrition to another level and just basically started to sort of, it all just sort of came together. And I think the other thing was Search to Retain, it was just a, a team that I was familiar with. I'd been associated with them for a few years. I knew everyone. And it was just, I think, I think it was just a good patch, really, from mm. just from many, many different sort of areas. I think I was, yeah, pretty, just pretty comfortable in the team. And it just sort of worked. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and I guess that gets to, you know, our topic of today in terms of, you know, how do I balance eating for for training quality and for weight loss? Because it was around that time, I think it was about October of that year, I remember meeting up with you. I think we met up in a park, actually, because you were house sharing here in Melbourne and I was on the way back from work and you were locked out of the house. Or so I can't remember exactly what, but I remember <laughs> you saying, let's meet at this park around the corner. And so we're sitting there and you were telling me how you, you know, you wanted to target the national road race, you know, for 2013 being in you know the start of January. Uh, and you particularly wanted to, you know, look at the body composition side of things and get, you know, a lot leaner uh, in the lead up to that race. And, you know, we started putting together a bit of a strategy for that. Can you remember much about, I guess, the sorts of like that plan and, and how that came together and, and how that maybe differed from what you're doing before in terms of eating? Yeah, I think before that, I definitely was, oh, look, I didn't have anything super formal at all. Like I'd obviously just, I'd been around sport and heard a lot of people talking about things, but, and actually my younger brother as well, he had Paul Vanderplug, so he was a very, very successful mountain biker. Mm. He was another sort of person I was living with and following the coaching of earlier. And also he he actually had a few nutritionists when he was uh, in the junior sort of ranks and under 23. So I'd sort of, I'd, I'd had a bit of an idea from, 
from that sort of thing, uh, those sort of experiences. But then I hadn't, I'd never done anything myself. And I think once I sort of worked with yourself and got the plan going, uh, that was the first time I really sort of, yeah, I guess took it a bit more seriously and, and really sort of, yeah, did did a good job of really sort of, yeah, just matching the sort of nutritional needs uh, to the training and making sure we're getting enough carbs around the the sessions where I needed the carbs. And yeah, it worked really well. I, I was, uh, yeah, that I, again, that was, that was probably the other sort of, uh, well, the real breakout result, I think, in that 2013 in early uh, January where I got fourth place in the, in the road champs. Like that was, that was a big shock. But mm. uh, it certainly worked. <laughs> I remember mm. thinking that I was, yeah, I was a bit shocked. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, the reaction around because I remember I was I was at that race, and um, I remember the reaction around Bunning Young was like, "Whoa, where did that come from?" Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, mm. uh, it was it was fantastic. I remember thinking actually leading into that, this was probably at a similar time when I was in the park, locked out of a house. But <laughs> I think I even I, I wrote it to someone on Facebook. I was saying how I was sort of you know, very sort of like vaguely hoping to get a start in the tour down under because at that time I actually thought it was just the best place non-professional rider just gets an automatic start. And mm. I remember telling them, I, I sort of said, it's it's a bit like the Lord of the Rings. I feel like I'm Frodo and I really don't have any hope. I've, I've just got a fool's chance, but, you know, I'm just plowing along sort of nevertheless. So, mm. yeah, when when I got fourth in that race and there was – you know they were all professionals in front of me i couldn't believe it i was just mm. i was shocked but uh yeah anyway that was a yeah that was another highlight yeah absolutely so i guess um talking about and thinking a bit more in terms of the nutritional planning for modifying um i guess looking at you know making sure you're getting enough for the training that you're doing but then also you were targeting um certain body comp goals um how did you find modifying your, um, you know, your eating on a day-to-day basis for um, training? Did you find that process difficult or did you find it kind of pretty straightforward? I think it was, it's definitely, like it's it's not easy, I would say. Like it's, and it's, yeah, it's it's not sort of like just something that is just, without challenges like mm. it's definitely i remember at times it being a little bit difficult but it was it was fairly straightforward like with with the sort of plan that you've got it's not like super super rigid you've got a little mm. bit of flexibility um and you sort of know what to do but like at times i guess it can be a little bit difficult but look i didn't think it was overall i don't remember it being overly sort of arduous since since actually working with you, Alan, like in the years later, I sort of, uh, I got really into sort of the diet diary. I was using sort of my fitness pal and sort of logging absolutely everything and sort of like, you know, scanning barcodes and, and going, you know, the whole hog. And I think that was definitely, that was a lot harder and it required like way more, uh, just way more sort of mental energy and focus. Mm. So I think, I think doing the, the approach that we did sort of back in the search to retain days where it was a little bit more sort of a little bit more loose. It was, yeah, probably a little bit less difficult sort of just mentally. It was yeah. just mentally less taxing. Mm. 
but it was fairly yeah it was fairly straightforward like once you sort of got into the routine of it like I remember I sort of you know you, you didn't have to look at the sort of schedule the whole time you had a, a pretty good idea of the principles like if we had a hard training session uh, the day after you would have more carbs especially in the afternoon and evening before that session yep. and then after your sessions you have a refuel and then if there's a, a rest day afterwards that was the time that you sort of um, backed off a little bit you didn't need to have as many carbs you could back off the energy a little bit and and yeah once once you sort of got the head around the sort of rough principles of it i don't think it was too hard but look i think when you're sort of running an energy deficit it is sort of sometimes a little bit difficult like you do sometimes get a bit hungry and things like that it's not you know it's not just like a yeah yeah you don't just do it with ease yeah mm. yeah. yeah and that's um yeah that's what i guess i was going to ask you in terms of that um so yeah cuz obviously it's, there's days where you've got big training loads um and 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 quality sessions but then the days where you're not expending as much energy um, then you have, you know, and then you're um, reducing your energy intake. Um, that, how did you manage the feeling um, like you're you're hungry? Um, what was kind of did you notice that something else changed in your diet to help um, manage that feeling of of hunger? Not really, actually, Steph. I can't. I can't think of any sort of particular sort of tricks or methods or foods I, I sort of used. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I can't actually think of anything in particular. I, maybe just willpower, <laughs> just following the sort of following the types of snacks that uh, were sort of suggested by Alan, and then yeah. just sort of um, yeah, just trying to sort of wait. And I found it was never too long because you know, you're sort of fairly consistently training and mm. and often like when you were having a rest day, you pretty much just had to sort of hold out until, you know, the afternoon and then you were starting to sort of feed up for the next session. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there weren't too many sort of like, you know, full days or days on end where you sort of felt like you were really restricting. Yeah. And did you just have um, like I know we usually would put in more vegetables or salad like did you find that you know that kind of increased when you were um having more of that sort of lower energy intake you you know you take out the carbs but then you were having a bit more of the veggies yeah yeah things like veggies the beauty of them is that you can you can have a bit more and uh they just don't yeah they just don't sort of uh have the same hit of energy so yeah i think and that has actually just reminded me. I'm I'm pretty sure that yeah we did have more veggies, more filling foods with fiber and, and water in them, and uh, yeah, that definitely sort of uh, rings a bell. It's yep. so long ago. <laughs> um, and did you you know from I guess from implementing that that plan um, with our did you find that you then did get to what your body comp goals um were in time for the the road national champs yeah absolutely steph i actually i've done a lot of dexa scans and things like that like i've done many many of those sort of things and i actually just had a look through them and i had a look at the dexa scan that i got just before that 2013 national champs and you'll be pleased to hear this alan but i think it was 
the best body composition that I was able to get in my entire sort of time cycling. There you go. So awesome. I, I'm pretty sure I, I don't think I would have lost. Um, I, I don't think I had a pre-DEXA scan, but yeah, I think I got down to like about eight or nine percent body fat, and I don't think I, I, I don't think I lost any power. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that around the same time, I actually put out a peak power. And look, power meters aren't sort of like absolute sort of they aren't the ultimate source of truth there's a little bit of like you know variability especially between models and things like that but i'm pretty sure that on that power meter like i put out my peak power when i was at my lowest weight so things really did come together really well um in that sort of build up to that 2013 summer yeah and the race went well yeah yeah the race went well it was um yeah, it, it was a slightly different course at Bunningyong. It had a bit of a, a longer course for a few laps, but look, I was able to climb. Um, I actually just lost contact on the final lap, but look, I, I was able to sort of get there in the front group and there's, the breakaway was still getting caught. So Luke Durbridge won from the breakaway, but yeah, I was sort of third in the sprint and was able to sort of, I think, get up Bunningyong, Mount Bunningyong like 16 times or something. So yeah. That was, um, yeah, a great success. I certainly, uh, I, I don't think before then I really thought it was, uh, I didn't even, didn't know if it was even possible. So it was, yeah, it was a great success. Mm. And that was that race we were talking about before that was sort of a big surprise to everyone. Yeah. Um, in, including yourself probably. I remember looking at some photos of, of that just afterwards with um, the DS at the time, Mark Isaacs, and there's almost this look of disbelief on your face. <laughs> yeah. And look, just as a sort of... Um, yeah, just as a bit of a sort of comparison, some of the other DEXA scans that I had in sort of 2016, 2017, I was able to get lighter, but I lost quite a bit of muscle. Like, mm. And again, I, I'm not 100% sure exactly how accurate the DEXA scans are, but as far as I understand, they are pretty accurate. And I think I was about five kilos less muscle mass. And I think a lot of it was because I remember originally thinking like, oh, I've lost a fair bit of muscle mass. And I sort of thought, oh, look, it's probably in the arms and the upper body. Like this is probably just a really good thing. And then to my horror, I, I saw it and the breakdown said it was mainly in my legs. So, mm, and I'm pretty sure that around that time as well, I, I think I did actually lose a bit of, I did lose a bit of peak power. Mm. So I was definitely not hitting the same sort of numbers. Like I think you know, that I was sort of hitting in that 2013 year. I was sort of up around like in the 1700s fairly regularly. Um, definitely like 1600 would be sort of, you'd see that pretty frequently. Like in training, mm. you'd get above 1500 watts just, you know, anytime you wanted to. But then a few uh, in those other years, like I was starting to get to the point a few times where it was like, geez, I'm struggling to hit 1500. And yeah, I definitely had a little bit of a, a drop in power. So it is interesting. Like I sort of, yeah, you, it can, it can, you can lose muscle when you're trying mm. to lose weight. And and funnily enough, I don't think I was actually, according to the DEXA scan, I don't think I actually had less fat at the time as well. So it was, mm. yeah, look, I certainly don't fully understand everything that was going on there, but um, it was quite different. Like when you look at the scan and the body composition, quite different from uh 2013 to some of those other ones and funnily enough i just had one earlier this week another yep. dexa as part of the the baker institute heart study 
And now my muscle mass is back up to what it was in 2013. Yep. A little bit more fat at the moment, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yep. it's interesting. Mm, there you go. And I think um, it really fits with a podcast we did sort of uh, towards the end of last year, which was around, you know, does lighter or leaner equal faster? Um, and, and I guess we made the point there that, you know, you can lose weight, but if it's not body fat, if, you know, if you're losing muscle, you're losing power. Uh, and we spoke to a, a runner at that stage, Izzy Bat Doyle, who talked about the fact that her, uh, you know, best times have come at, at a higher weight than what she'd naturally assumed was her, you know, ultimate quote unquote race weight. Uh, and this is you know, probably a, a similar situation. And, and certainly even just thinking back over results you had over your career, probably that 2013 to 2016 period is where you had probably your best results in terms of sprint finishes. Yeah, I think it probably was a little bit earlier. Like I think, yeah, once I got round to sort of maybe 2016, 17, I probably had a few years where it dropped off a little bit. But mm. And maybe that was because I was sort of, yeah, maybe stuffing up the diet a bit. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. Mm. It's also, I suppose, training sort of comes into it a fair bit as well. And I think yeah. I was probably training a little bit differently as well. And I was definitely, I was definitely trying out some some diet things, not really sort of under sort of any um, professional guidance. I was going a little bit sort of rogue and with the <laughs> diet diary stuff. And I was, I went through a patch as well with. It was actually partly brought on Steph from gut issues, which um, which you'd probably <laughs> you'd probably understand a lot more. I probably should have come to someone like yourself for a bit of advice. But what I found was a couple of things actually. I found that. I was really, I had a uh, one one race in particular, really long race, the Grafton to Inverell, which is one of the sort of big one-day races in Australia. I, I was in a really good position early on and I was in a breakaway and I think, oh, I think I was in a very good position. I felt great about halfway in and as the race panned out, it, it, it sort of, we weren't caught. So strategically, it sort of, it really fell into my lap. And as a small group, I really like I really should have been able to do well but my guts just completely sort of they just they just started to get bloated started to feel a bit sick and it was really I I felt like it was really sort of bulging out my stomach mm -hmm. and I don't know whether that was just a feeling but like I was even struggling to sort of get into the sort of aerodynamic position because my stomach was just so uncomfortable mm -hmm. and I started just to feel worse and worse until by the end I was still you know okay but like it really affected me. So I started sort of trying to to sort of not be as reliant on on just so many carbs. Cause I was also very it was very fragile. I was finding that I was I was on the knife edge of sort of hunger flatting a lot. So, you know, I tried to sort of get a little bit better with uh, fat metabolism. Yeah. So that, you know, I was a little bit more resilient in those longer races. So and look, it was interesting. I think that did definitely sort of definitely work. The Grafton to Inverell that I eventually did win in 2017, I think that definitely sort of, that definitely played a part in that. Like it was sort of, yeah, it, like I was, I just became a lot less sort of fragile with the sort of fueling. I didn't have to be sort of like, you know, looking at the clock and, and making sure that, you know, every half hour I was, I was getting the carbs in. It was a lot more sort of just, you just weren't quite as, uh, on a knife edge with it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, like um, in terms of getting gut symptoms and the, and the reasons why people do get gut symptoms, there's obviously there's a 
huge range of factors that can come into play and um, you know and also in terms of what we're feeding ourselves people will respond differently in terms of in terms of that the carbohydrate and, and fats so um, yeah but sounds like you managed to to get on top of it and um, and came good so that's great yeah look tried a few things sort of Worked to some degree, that's for sure. But yeah, it was. Well, if uh, it comes back, wasn't all you, can, positive. you can see Al or myself. <laughs> yeah, or, or let, go back and listen to listen listen to Steph on <laughs> episode seven A of the podcast. Why do I get gut issues during yep. exercise? Yeah, <laughs> I should. I should. Yeah, um, but um, I guess the the other thing I'm interested in is, um, you know, I guess yeah, like with with trying to target a certain um, body composition, obviously, you know, there's changes that you need to make to your your diet. Um, And I'm guessing that you don't try and achieve that body composition all year round um, because that would probably be a a nightmare. Um, Is that right? You kind of sort of have a look at what your key races are and um, where it might be important to kind of hone in on that um, body comp, but then after the race, when you know you can kind of relax a bit. Yeah, look, definitely in a few years there, I think I was probably trying to sort of keep it up, sort of like I, I think I was trying to keep it up more or less the whole time because as a cyclist in Australia, it becomes it's it's not really super obvious when when your off season mm. sort of starts and finishes because you have the summer and in the summer in Australia, there's heaps of racing. You've got the nationals. So that's a really sort of key time. And I was always trying to sort of lose weight for the national champs through that period. But then mm. you sort of have a bit of a break and then you start to get all of these sort of the Asian tour sort of kicking off. So yeah, I was sort of probably trying not to sort of like, you know, really sort of, you know, balloon out too much, but I found it was, it was very difficult. Like I never really was able to, I'd say I was almost trying, but just never able to really sort of keep that sort of consistently. I think your body is just sort of, you're fighting against forces Mm. that are are pretty strong. Mm. So yeah, I think just targeting a few races for it is probably, it's probably a wise move. And I think it's interesting. I remember sort of when I was working a lot with, with riders in the NRS it was always one of the things that frustrated me with the calendar is, you, you know, you do a race and so you kind of like build up for that race. But then the next race was only two or three weeks later. So, it, and that would happen like spread out over six or seven or eight months of the year. And so you're like, you're constantly either preparing from one race, recovering from the next one and going straight into the preparation of the next one. So you never got, you know, particularly if you're doing almost all the races, you never got this kind of quality block of training in, in the middle of the year at some stage where you could get some consistency in your training but also in the nutrition side of things to sort yeah. of work on whatever the goals you are and i know it was a constant frustration working with riders is that we could never you know you had that block leading into nationals but it was really the only time where you would have that consistency over the whole course of the year and i think the nrs calendar has changed a little bit now but certainly um yeah, you know, it five ten years ago that was a, a real problem oh and look i think that's a real challenge like for cycling in particular, because look, some riders like to race a lot and just go from tour to tour to tour. Like Cameron Bailey, who was also on Search to Retain, he mm. he really liked that because I think he just 
I just don't think he enjoyed training up for races <laughs> as much as he did racing. But I think it's really difficult in cycling because especially when you're going to these Asian tours because you're traveling, you're sort of getting out of your time zone, so that sort of throws you off. And, and when you travel, it's hard to sort of eat well. Like if you yeah. try and eat well while you're traveling, I certainly found it sort of, I just found it difficult. Like when you're in your own yeah. environment, it's much easier just to sort of effortlessly do what you'd like to do and 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 eat well. It's very difficult to sort of um, yeah do a controlled build, and I think that is a bit sort of a bit different to other sports. I know as a mountain biker, before I was doing much road, you you're fully in control of your calendar. You can pick and choose the races that you want to target, so it's much easier to sort of be a bit more strategic about it but especially when on the road you've got you're in a team and you know you get asked to do the races you sort of you want to do them as well but like it's it's sort of um it's it's just a different environment very different environment so you do often end up just sort of yeah racing a lot and yeah it's less less controlled i suppose Mm, definitely yeah and um any any kind of tips or advice that I guess you know now um, that you think could be beneficial to, um, to let's say, riders, um, cyclists or triathletes that are trying to, you know, achieve body comp goals while still making sure they're hitting the, the training quality? Yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. I think it's probably like when, as I've gone back and had a look at all the DEXA scans, <laughs> I think one thing that sort of uh, came out of there was I think I probably should have just kept on working with an external person like mm. Alan or, you know, someone who's a little bit sort of further further removed perhaps, like mm. going it alone and trying to trying to sort of manage that whole yourself, that whole sort of side of it. I think it's pretty taxing and it's easy to get wrong. So mm. I'd probably I'd probably recommend trying to trying to sort of um I suppose pass off a little bit of that responsibility and and because I think it makes it a bit easier as well like it, it's sort of less that you sort of have to just deal with yourself. Mm-hmm. Like cuz yeah, you yeah, you've often got a lot of other things going on as an athlete. So I think the more you can sort of bring in other people just help manage it if you can it's probably uh it's probably wise yeah yeah and i think like i'd uh i guess maybe i'm a bit biased being a dietitian myself but i would try and encourage athletes to to do that and i do see too often where they um just kind of do that kind of initial assessment and they might get a plan and then they think oh like this is working great i'll just keep doing it and you know doesn't matter if my training changes or whatever I'll I'll just manage that by myself whereas I, you know they they benefit much more of checking in because things change and also you know you can kind of then talk about well hey what are um key races key events or what is realistic um and then where can we kind of you know maybe give our body a bit more energy here and then reduce it down here, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I think I'd, I'd definitely encourage that for sure. Yeah, and look, eh, it's tricky. It's a very tricky area. Like I think a lot of these endurance sports, like it, it really is, um, it's hard. Like especially, like I think it's, it sort of comes a bit more easy to some people 
but mm. it really is a hard balancing act to get right. Like it's mm. like when I was doing say the diet diaries, there were definitely times where like it just becomes like it's it's such a it's just such a taxing thing to do. And I actually had a few times where like I was in supermarkets looking at labels and just sort of like just stressing. Like it it just can be like it can sort of it can go sort of like quite badly, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a difficult balance to get right. It's mm. very so difficult. It's, yeah, so it sounds like, um, yeah, because as you said, like that approach and, and probably what you were doing prior to 2012 is, you know, you, you know, not giving it really that much thought in terms of how your nutrition complements or doesn't complement your training schedule. And, and, and yeah, as you said, the flip side to that is if you get, you know, too focused on it um, and too obsessed with it, it causes a lot of stress. And, and obviously, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes, you know, the worst case scenario is leading towards those sort of disordered eating practices or images, you know, is, issues around body image or possibly even, you know, full-blown eating disorders down the track if it gets bad enough. So it's striking that balance between having some sort of way of um, or some mental model of how your nutrition adjusts according to your training schedule, but, yeah, not being so uh, rigid or, or fixate on it that it kind of becomes obsessive. Yeah, and look, it's, yeah, look, it is just such a hard thing to get right. Like I think in some ways you sort of have to give it you know, some thought, but like, yeah, look, it's, it's tricky, tricky mm. area. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we are going to finish off Neil with our bonus round where we get to find out a little bit more about you outside of eating and, and, uh, road nationals and things like that. So our first question, um, you know, mo most people may already know this if they know you, but you're a, a physiotherapist. But if you could go back to the end of high school and start again down a completely different career path, what do you reckon you'd do? Oh, I have no idea, Alan. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. I've just been sort of following my nose since high school and just yep. this is where I've ended up. But look, yeah, I really just... Uh, yeah, I, I sort of can't imagine sort of following a different path. It's not very imaginative of me, but uh, yeah. Maybe not that sure. means maybe. that you're happy doing what you're doing. Yeah, I suppose so. Like maybe maybe getting into the road a little bit sooner. But look, as I say that, I think about sort of the, the mountain bike experiences that I had before then. I think, no, nah, that probably wouldn't have been good. But look, yeah, I don't know, Alan. No, <laughs> don't fair know. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um one thing on your bucket list that you're yet to do. Oh, oh! Look, there's definitely there's this jump uh, in the lockdown of 2020. There's this jump that's it's about six meters, which is not huge. Like all of the young kids are doing it, but uh, a mountain bike jump. Mountain bike jump. I got really close to doing it. I actually sort of did a smaller version, and then they sort of made it about another meter longer, and. I was so close to doing it a few times, sort of backed out every time. So look, that jump, that jump, that jump would be uh, it'd be good to cross that one off the list. Yep. And is is that like you know thirteen year olds doing this in the bushes behind a park somewhere? Yeah, it's behind the uh, it's behind the Aubrey Tafe. It's sort of a little bit of a you know, yeah, it's not a fully sanctioned area. I think they're trying in Aubrey to get more sort of proper sort of mountain bike areas so that so that it doesn't happen but yeah this is yeah a bunch of 15 year olds i think getting out there and just uh <laughs> making some big jumps 
Yes. Well, it's better than spending their time on video games, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. And look, yeah. it's oh, it, it actually seems to me like uh, oh, it'd be a shame in some ways if they do just get this purpose-built thing for them because I think you can see part of it is just this sort of like adventurous spirit. Like yeah. they're just super keen. They're going out there. They're grabbing shovels and, you know, yeah. they're planning it. And, you know, sometimes they are a bit crappy and you know, they can be a bit dangerous and stuff. But, you know, you can really see there's, there's some really sort of like I'm sure they have some great experiences and it reminds us we didn't sort of well, we did it a bit with biking, but we did that a lot with uh, with skiing in the winter, sort mm. of building jumps and stuff. And it is just, it is great. But anyway, I'd like to be able to sort of do some of these jumps that these guys are making. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, slightly related to that, but not about a jump specifically, a sport you've always wanted to try, but you've not had the chance. Oh, I like the, uh, I have to say, I like the look of that short track speed skating. Yeah, so, right. The one where Bradbury ended up getting the medal, like, yeah, it, it just looks kind of dodgy. Lots of, you know, it just looks kind of fun. Lots yep. of sort of crashes and, yeah, it just it just does look pretty fun, but never really had the uh, never really had the opportunity. And maybe it's part of my sort of Dutch heritage coming out. The Dutch are mm. big in uh, ice skating. So, yep. yeah, it would have been good to, to try something like that, I reckon. Mm. I did a bit mm. of cross-country skiing in, in my sort of, earlier days until it was probably around you know 20 or so um yep. but yeah short track short track ice skating or speed skate i don't even know what it's called exactly <laughs> yeah oh we'll have to watch the winter olympics in a couple of weeks to figure it out yes it'll yeah. be on yeah um do you live by any piece of advice or motto oh not really no yeah i didn't think so i wasn't i hadn't had you pegged as a, a motto person Nah, oh, I should have, I should have. Nah, no particular nah. motto comes to mind. No, nah. just Fair uh, enough. take life as nah. it comes. <laughs> Got nothing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and final question, and, and again, this might be familiar for some people that know you. What's on in the Peloton? That was your podcast. What's happening there? It's a bit of a, a bit of a hiatus. We, we had, uh, you know, we thought. In 2020, people are going into lockdown. Uh, there's not much going on. And we thought, right, we're going to come to the rescue and give people something to do. And then yep. I think uh, there was, a, I think, do you remember the ABC? There was a bit of a joke thing on the ABC that basically came out and said, don't start a podcast, whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> but look, yeah, we, we sort of just, uh, we had a bit of a run there. And then unfortunately, Tim was, he was not too well and had to go into hospital. And that sort of, mm. um, sort of stopped our run there and we haven't really uh got it going we've just been a bit too busy both of us he's been yep. working as a with, as a teacher full-time and, and quite busy mm. in that role and i've just been pretty busy with uh with yeah real job as well but look i'd love to uh i'd love to get it back going alan maybe mm. soon we have actually spoken in the last fortnight about a potential episode there so you, you never know it could it mm. could be coming soon well, there have to be lots of guests because neither of you are in the peloton at the moment to talk about what's on. That's right. We'll have yep. we'll definitely have to get some guests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so your co-host there, Timmy Guy, um, from up in New South Wales, he is a cyclist as well. Rode with what uh, a tacky team, Gusto, the team that Search to Retain became with change of sponsorship after a while, and then um, when that team folded at the end of twenty eighteen, I think it was. Um, or 2017, I can't remember now. 
they then sort of uh, the sponsorship moved on to a Slovenian team where it's just a classic cycling story, wasn't oh, it? Alan? Just totally teams merging into other teams, yep. sort of some staff coming over, That's some it. sponsors coming over. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the domestic team became the continental team, which merged with the Taiwanese team, which <laughs> then became a Slovenian registered That's team, right. which then became a Slovenian owned team. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and he, Jimmy, had, and he had uh, he rode with the two well the reigning sort of two time Tour de France winner um, Tade Pagacha. That's so right. That was quite interesting because I remember yeah. I was I was talking to Tim uh, when we were sort of both overseas and I was telling him like, geez, there's some you know there's some pretty good young riders on the team at the moment. Like you know they're going pretty good. I reckon they'll you know they'll get to World Tour and they'll be really good. And Tim was sort of like, oh yeah, we've got one too. He's really mm. good. And I remember sort of thinking like, oh, he sounds pretty good, but like <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was as convinced with uh, with Tim's young talent as some of the ones that we had on our team. Yeah. And then uh, yes, look, it turns out Tim was <laughs> absolutely right. He had uh, you know <laughs> oh who knows talent of a generation. He's unreal. So. It only took him another two or three years after that to win the tour, and now he's won two. Oh, it was unbelievably quick, unbelievably mm. quick. It was like, yeah, he's he's riding with Tim in in that, um, yeah, Ljubljana team, and then yeah, he he just transitions so quickly, um, mm. which has been happening a little bit more recently in in cycling. It seems like a lot of younger riders are able to sort of step up and and get results straight away, which is. Which is interesting. I wonder if I don't know. I wonder if that shows that maybe the sport's cleaned up a bit. I don't know, but like, mm. yeah, certainly a big talent. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of spewing that. I was one of the staff who didn't come across. <laughs> then I would have worked with uh, Pogaccia and those guys. But uh, yeah, no, I was mid PhD at the time, so I thought, no, no, maybe not. So that, that's that's life, isn't it? That's it. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Neil. Great to catch up with you and find out a bit about what's happening, but also hear about, I guess, that nutrition and, and how you match up your, your carbohydrate in particular, that aspect of nutrition with your, your training schedule and how that sort of allows you to train at that level, but simultaneously, you know, uh, get the body composition or the body fat down to sort of that goal that you had. So, um, and obviously, you know, culminating in a great result, which I won't take all the credit for. I'm sure the coaching and, and everything else uh, had a much bigger part in it. But, yeah, uh, great to, to hear all about it and, and give a bit, people a bit of an idea of how that plays out in the real world. So thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Great to hear from Neil Van Ploeg. Um, so as normal, Steph, we're going to do a, a summary on the topic to finish up the episode. But before we do that, as we mentioned at the start of the podcast, we we're just going to have a quick little chat about the case study that we mentioned in last week's episode, mm -hmm. which is around a, a case study of a female 1,500-metre runner, Hilary Stellingworth, and I guess how she was able to manage her body composition over her running career, which in included two um, trips to the Olympics in 2012 and 2016 as well. And I think there was even um, a pregnancy mm -hmm. and a child somewhere in the middle of that case yeah. study. But yep. there's a beautiful figure within that case yeah. study um, that just shows the the change in um, skin folds, you know, year on year where the peak competition times were and the change over consecutive years. So do you want to talk us a little bit yeah. through that case study, Steph, before we summarise the, the topic in general? Yeah, yep. Um, and we can even add, you know, a, a link to this case study as well because it is freely available in full text. Yeah. Um, so, 
yeah, I guess one thing that we're wanting to highlight here um, is for listeners that are looking to adapt their body composition for their the sport, perhaps considering implementing more of a kind of science-based approach. Um, so there's plenty of, of data out there now suggesting that maintaining peak body composition all year round is unrealistic and it can be detrimental to health and or performance. And, you know, we had that conversation just then with Neil in terms of, you know, what's expected in, in cycling. So um, having a bit more of a mapping around where those key races are um, and where it may be actually more beneficial to be a, a target, um, you know, um, body composition. So, yeah, so basically looking to strategically periodize body composition. And so some key um, points that, that I've gotten from, from this particular case study is um, for this particular um, athlete, um, the general prep phase was about eight months, so September to, to about April, um, and she was at about 2 to 4% over her ideal um, competition body weight. And the focus over that phase was to optimise her energy availability. Um, then the athlete's competition body composition phase was in a shorter period of time. So it was about four months from May to August. And, and that involved a, a quite specific and individualised time frame. So for her, it was about six to eight weeks. And they were really aiming for, for a slower weight loss approach, about 0.7% of body weight loss a week. Um, and, and that's where they had this calorie deficit. Um, but while they actually did that, they were monitoring various factors such as body weight, performance, hunger, sleep, you know, a whole range of factors that then would help feed back into that process and they'd manipulate things if they saw anything was was not working out well. Um, also, there was a range of, of peak body composition parameters that were aimed for, so it wasn't like a single you know, this is the number that's important. It was like looking at a, at a range. So nutrition was periodized based on, on training. So basically less energy intake or macronutrient manipulation around easy training days versus harder or quality sessions. Protein um, intake was kept relatively high just in order to, um, I guess, minimize any lean body mass um, loss. Uh, and then, yeah, this paper recommends that um, you kind of want to collect several years of data collection and analysis um, in order to work out, you know, what a kind of feasible and individualised um, health and performance body composition range is for a particular athlete. And obviously that depends on the athlete that you're working with. Um, but, you know, often, Alan, we get asked, oh, you know, like, what what body weight should I be for, for competition? And unfortunately, it's not an easy answer and we need to collect um, data around that. Um, and then another really interesting um, point in this paper is that um, a periodized body composition approach may enhance long-term body composition outcomes, so um, i.e. Leanness, leanness of the athlete. So there was a study that followed gymnasts and middle distance runners and they found that those and it was the gymnasts that had the greatest daily 
hourly energy deficits, they actually had the highest body fat um, percentage, while the athletes, which were more of the middle distance runners, that had more of a, of a closer hourly um, daily energy balance, they actually had the lowest body fat percentage. So basically, it's suggesting that the closer we are to our optimal energy availability um, uh, over the majority of time, it, it's probably going to suggest that we're going to be more likely to get to a leaner physique. Um, and again, that's an important message because often we want to go for real quick and fast loss. Um, we're not usually all that patient. And then finally, another really interesting point, which there needs to be a bit more research in, in this, is that long-term training adaptation when weight-dependent athletes train at a heavier mass during the general prep phase, then taper their weight back down during the competition um, period. So what's being suggested there is that being slightly heavier during that general prep phase could potentially create uh, or will a, a greater neuromuscular and cardiovascular load um, and stimulus for training adaptation, um, which can then, then that um, benefit could then be maintained during the competition phase. Yeah, and so um, being just, you know, a bit heavier during that general prep phase can um, possibly be an advantage um, going into then your, your competition phase just because of that neuromuscular load and benefits to training adaptations. Um, and, yeah, finally, um, as we know, you know, weight is, is determined by a number of factors, including genetics and, and environmental factors. Um, so there is definitely, a, you know, a genetic limit to the extremes of which an athlete can manipulate their body composition. So I guess a, a key point there, um, like so many of us do, um, don't compare yourself to, to the other athlete, um, you know, and, what, and what, how lean they are. Um, we're all individuals, so um, you need to really, yeah, work and be specific to yourself. Yep, exactly. And as we said back in episode 23, does lighter equal faster uh, or does leaner equal faster? Um, faster equals faster, regardless of what the body composition <laughs> is at the end of the day. Um, so yeah. let the performance be what the performance is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, so just a couple of other things, to, I guess, to add to that and, and sort of wrap up the topic more broadly obviously what we've talked about here and what you've just described there with um with the case study with hillary as well is this concept of periodized nutrition and particularly of the energy and, and macronutrient intake so uh, as you mentioned there and this is exactly what we discussed in last week's episode of the podcast is keeping the protein consistent uh, and ensuring adequate protein to protect muscle mass um but it's the carbohydrate within those calories that's going to fluctuate up and down according to the training schedule and the fact that you don't have to eat the same amount of carbs every day of the week because you don't train the same every day of the week. I mean, some people will and that's fine, um, but for some people there's really big peaks and troughs between their biggest days and their lightest days and that's where adjusting the carbs up and down can be a useful strategy. So you're still getting the carbs leading into those key training sessions, so the two to three meals or snacks beforehand, even if that's sort of into the, the afternoon or evening before and Neil certainly mentioned that with with early morning training um, but then being able to reduce it in after those training sessions if there's a, an easy session coming next or a rest day or something like that that's when you can reduce down the carbs and therefore the calories 
um, but it's not going to have any impact on performance because you're not doing any hard training that's reliant on that carbohydrate during that time. Uh, and it also, as you described just before, Steph, gets you that sort of better um, match between uh, the timing of when you're eating the most calories and when you're actually expending the most calories as well. Um, so you're reducing it down at those times when you're not doing heavy training and you're increasing it in the lead up to and then during that hard session. Um, so we use that concept of, you know, uh, a box that you have to fit all those calories within, which is the protein, fat, carbohydrate and alcohol. Um, the protein kind of goes in first and takes up a certain amount of space. Alcohol uh, may or may not be relevant to you and you may decide to reduce that anyway, but that's obviously an individual thing. Um, fat, you know, we need a minimum amount per day, probably about 40, 50 grams. But once we get up sort of 150 plus, we've probably got scope to reduce. And then carbohydrate basically takes up whatever space is left within the box, which is essentially the total amount of calories you can eat over a week um, to hit that body composition goal. And depending on how much space you do or don't have for that carbohydrate depends on how aggressively you need to stack it around training or not. So obviously the less carbs are available to you to fit within the box, the more aggressively you need to stack it. Um, the, the bigger that space, you may not need to worry that much about periodizing your carbohydrate. Um, so if the box is too small, like if you've restricted essentially your energy intake too much by making the overall box too small to begin with, I guess that's when you get into this issue of, you know, some of the health consequences of low energy availability. We talked about that back in episode 24, so you can go back and have a listen to that if you haven't already. Um, obviously, if the box is too big, then essentially we're eating too much, our calorie intake is too high. And I guess the consequence of that is simply uh, either you're not going to achieve the body fat loss that you're aiming for, or possibly even some body fat gain in some cases. And so people then get frustrated with that because they're not achieving what they hope to from a, a body composition point of view. Um, Neil sort of talked about these strategies in terms of the work we did with him sort of in 2012 leading into sort of 2013. He also talked a bit, I guess, when he moved to another team and, and wasn't able to work with me anymore after that, some of the things he then had to go and do himself because he wasn't getting that um, professional support. Uh, and that was things like using food diaries, which he found quite stressful and, and, and ultimately not that helpful. Um, and also sort of trying lower carbohydrate diets to try and get some fat adaptation. Um, but also from a, a means, you know, a lot of people use that to try and reduce their energy intake as well. Um, and we also discussed the fact that you know, at some times of those might have been um, having some effect, um, but he did notice that certainly his sprinting power and his high intensity efforts um, certainly weren't as good in that phase of his career. Now, whether that was specifically due to diet or training or a combination of factors, you know, it's impossible to say without going back and measuring everything um, and pouring through all the data. Um, but yeah, certainly you hear that all the time of people that have tried to cut back on carbs as a manner of um, you know, reducing energy intake to, to get some body fat loss and they've generally struggled for the higher intensity work as a result of that. So just something to be aware of. And again, that's where the size of the, you've got for carbs in your box might be small. You can't get rid of it completely. You just got to stack it around those key training sessions to, to get the most out of those sessions. Uh, and then finally, as you said, Steph, we're not trying to achieve this sort of body composition all year round. Um, in some sports, you know, if you're doing like Ironman or a marathon or something like that, it's a little bit easier because you might only have two or three key events of the year where you can sort of build up to this one event and then you've got sort of, you know, maybe three to six months until the next one. So you can do that a bit more easily. Uh, or you've got a competition phase, which is maybe only a month or two of the year 
Um, whereas in some sports, you know, cycling is a good example that Neil gave, um, the competition is far more spread out across the year. So it does become a little bit more challenging in that respect. Um, and so I guess then it's about saying, okay, well, I probably still can't, even if I wanted to do well at all these races, I'm never going to be able to achieve my perfect body composition for all of them across, say, an eight or nine month period. So let's pick which are the most important ones that I really want to do well at within that eight or nine months. Um, is there a block of a month or two in there where I can really target from a body comp point of view and know that other races I might be going into with not the quote unquote ideal body comp? Um, and in a sport like cycling, if they're flat events, the body comp, you know, leaner isn't necessarily going to equal faster anyway. Uh, it's only going to be for those climbing events where it makes a difference. And so if you can um, try and periodize that into your competition schedule um, and then match that up with your nutrition, then that can be helpful too. Yeah. Good summary now, as always. Never disappoint on that. Um, so hopefully our listeners, uh, yeah, found this one um, informative and, um, yeah, like we said, that we'll, we'll put the case study up. Um, and also when you were talking about, you know, changing, manipulating the macro composition, the other one they can listen to was our very first episode where we were very lucky to have Professor Louise Burke um, on the episode and she also, you know, kind of explains why when we try and go higher intensity, being on a higher fat diet may not be um, that helpful for an intensity point of view. Awesome. Uh, so that's a summary. Next episode we are up to. We are so excited about this. I'm um, winning my pants just like you. Uh, episode 30A at 30A, sorry. What have we got in store? Yeah, yeah. As you said, Steph, I think we're both, this was one of the very first topics that we ever came up with when we launched the podcast over a year ago and said, we want to do this topic. And then we thought it took us about two seconds, I think, to think who <laughs> would we get to do this topic? Yeah. And then we had our person and we spent the last year chasing them down, <laughs> hunting them down, yep. getting them to commit. Yep. And we've got it. We've got it. Uh, so really excited because tomorrow, as of the date of this recording, we're going to record yeah. it. So so looking forward to this our topic is i think one that i don't think i've ever heard a discussion about this mm. before mm -mm. but i think one that everyone wants to know the answer to so the topic is how can my training data help with my nutrition so how do you use all that stuff that you gather on your bike on you know you put on strava or training peaks from your heart rate monitors yeah. from any wearables all Wearable of that kind watches. of stuff yeah we collect so much data these days we have so much gizmos and gadgets you can um, do self-perceived ratings on apps and all kinds of stuff but what's it got to do with nutrition can it be useful for nutrition is it a whole load of rubbish mm -hmm. um, so we're going to have dr trent stellingworth from the canadian sports institute to help us answer that question so um, really excited to have trent on um, we were actually talking the other day if we couldn't get trent i don't even know who we would get to mm -hmm. answer this question because he has that background he's you know, a sports scientist a physiologist he's done research in sports nutrition uh, he works at the Canadian Sports Institute in the research side of things but he also works as a physiologist there and he's done a lot of coaching with athletes before as well mm -hmm. um, so he sort of ticks all of the boxes that sort of come up within this topic so yeah. um, I remember when we first approached him he's like oh it sounds like an interesting topic I don't know how we're going to do it though and then we sent through some discussion points he's like oh that sounds really cool so yeah really looking forward to this one
Yeah, yeah. And he's got a lot of experience with um, the, the sports that we, you know, are looking at running cycling and, and triathlon and written a lot of guidelines in this area as well. So, yep. um, and, you know, his wife is a, um, a Olympic level athlete as well or has been. Well, she's the one we we're just talking about with that case study. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if that was mentioned, but yep, it is. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that, yeah, super excited about that one. So um, we will leave you all in peace until then. Um, but, yeah, really encourage um, everyone to, to tune into, into this one coming up. Yep. Awesome. All right. Have a great week, everyone. All right. See you all.